0: Acid
1: man, acid man, acid man,
0: acid man, acid man, acid Acid man. Say, what time is it? Hello
1: and welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange, a series of conversations with the artists, labels and promoters who are shaping the electronic music landscape. My name's Ryan Keeling, and I'm the editor at Resident Advisor. The exchange thrives on good stories, and when I sat down with the veteran UK DJ Eddie Richards recently, he had plenty of them. He told me about his residency at Camden Palace in London during the mid-80s, a club that was known as one of the best of its era. I heard how Richards was one of the UK's earliest adopters of house music, and how he had a large hand in introducing the emergent sound to London audiences. Then there was the one about him founding the world's first DJ agency, In the early 90s, he set up Dynamics to take care of bookings for the likes of Jeff Mills, Todd Terry and Richie Horton, DJs he'd got to know as one of London's most respected selectors. We talked about his gigs as a key DJ on the rave scene, playing legendary events like Sunrise, Energy and Helter Skelter. And he also told me about Wiggle, a party he became involved with alongside Nathan Coles and Terry Francis that helped establish the sound of Tech House back in the mid 90s. Wiggle is presently celebrating its 20th birthday, so he thought now was a great time to have Richard stop by and share some of his many tales. So I think where I really wanted to start was to talk about some of your pre-history, if you like, with DJing before um, you became what would be considered like a a club DJ. Do you recall when you first kind of became interested in the idea of playing music
0: for other people? Yeah, I do. But it wasn't really my idea. It was a friend's idea. We was at school together and uh, he was just into... uh, Kind of techy stuff He seemed to know like serial numbers Model numbers of equipment and stuff You know, one of these guys that's kind of you know Into all that stuff He suggested like, let's start a mobile disco So I was like, yeah, great idea You know, when you're at school, you just do your thing So we went out and just bought one turntable And it was like a Garrard Garrard SP25 Mark II You know, like a, not even Belt drive, it was like some like a Wheel drive thing and we were committed after that. We just we decided to buy another one, and then we looked in the ads in the back of like Wireless magazine and, and bought a mixer, and had to sold all that together. We figured we needed a speaker, so we borrowed a speaker from somebody who was in a band, but he was a bass player, so we only had an 18-inch speaker. So uh, that was the first thing that we did. And I've said this before, but we actually called this mobile disco Ministry of Sound. Right, believe it or not, and I've actually got a picture of a. We made our own like coffin out of chipboard, covered it with fablon. I don't know if you know what fablon is, but no. it's this fablon is like it's like a sticky back plastic, and we we covered it in all this orange fablon with. F- fluorescent green letters along the front saying Ministry of Sound (laughs)
1: Have you since bought that up with Ministry of Sound? No I
0: haven't (laughs) but you know what at that time I registered my name I had a different name when I started so I registered a name Eddie Richards and I thought I'd registered Ministry of Sound so I was kind of digging through all the documents I think I might even have it somewhere where I've actually I own the registration to that name. So did you get any bookings with this mobile disco? Yeah yeah we were booked See, my dad was like part of a like a social club thing, and he, I think one of my first bookings was was for the place that he worked. But those kind of things at those days, they they seem to attract like, I don't know. Uh, my sister was into was into Motown, and she was like a mod. She was quite a like, lot older than me, and so the first things I did were like for all these mods, basically. And they were just into Motown, so and she was into Motown, and that's what we played. I played like Motown, and like you know, these guys on scooters turned up, you know, skinheads and. That's the first first mobile discos that we played. So
1: if someone was interested in going out and hearing like these particular styles of music around that time, would it be more often that a mobile DJ would play these types of events rather than like going to a, a club where there's like an installed like sound system yeah. and
0: DJ booth and those kinds of things? See, I don't remember if there was clubs at that particular time. I was like really young, I was like fourteen or something. Oh, right, okay. And this was just like a you know, like a working men's club if you like a sports and social club you know and they just had a night like a disco night but it just happened to have mods that's what was around at the time and my sister kind of was there and she was going out with this skinhead guy and so we that's what I played I played Motown and stuff and when I first got into it I wasn't wasn't really into music it was just more like my sister was into it and I just kind of got dragged into it through my friend buying this equipment really What did get you into music was a returning point yeah, that's a good question. I'm not really sure if there was a particular turning point, but I found that I was the music that I liked, you know, it seemed to stay with me. If you like, it's it stood the test of time. You know what I mean? And I found that out since then. The stuff that I just got into before all the internet thing was going on, the music that I got into, I found a generation later or two would be looking for that music too. So I kind of like affirmed my. Good taste, if you like, at that point in time. Mm. What, what I got into then is classic today, you know what I mean? And I didn't have any... I didn't have reference points at that time. It was just about what I liked... Did you end up through that kind of doing DJ professionally
1: in some form? I wanted to link this as, because I'd read that you were DJing in um, strip
0: clubs at a certain yeah. point in time. Would that sort of follow on from the mobile? Yeah, it, it did. I mean, I, I really enjoyed DJing. It was just with a mate and we were out, you know, doing whatever we could do, really. Mm. But then I went to college. My parents wanted me to go to college in Southbank Polytechnic. And I, uh, you know, I didn't. I wasn't really that really interested. I was kind of doing it really because my my parents wanted me to do it. So at lunchtimes, I was just going out, and I managed to actually get a little spot DJing in a, like a lunchtime thing, strip club, and I started playing there. It, I don't know if it was really a continuation of my love for DJing or something I knew how to do and it was just get out of classes basically, but that's how it continued from from that point. The actual turning point for me was there was a local, I used to live in Milton Keynes, I still do, place called The Starting Gate in Milton Keynes, it was a pub a biker's pub and I set my mobile disco up in there and all these bikers used to come up and ask me to play all this different music and then Milton Keynes happened to be like a London overspill at the time. So there was all these different kinds of people like punks and gays and indie kids. And they turned up at the bikers pub because they weren't really kind of welcomed in other places because of the way they looked and they dressed. So they were coming up with some tracks and saying, can you play this, and can you play that, and can you play this? And I really got into some of the stuff they were playing, you know, and that pub, you know, started to attract a lot of kids, and it turned into like this, like an indie gay kind of night, and it was really successful. And some of the guys in there were saying to me, you should go to this club in London called Heaven. And I, I hadn't really actually even gone to London, to be honest, that much. I see. So there's some of the gay guys who would go. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They would say to me, you should go to Heaven. It's a really great club. So I went to Heaven and I was totally blown away. It was like like a revelation. You know what I mean? It's like I was looking for something and I didn't know I was looking for it and I found it in Heaven. It was like the music was completely different Everybody was dressed completely different. The way they programmed the music was completely different, and I was like, "Wow, you know, this is this is what I want to do," you know. And I was looking around to try and find someone to ask. And I don't know if you know, in heaven, like the the DJ booth at that time was caged. You couldn't really get into it. Okay. But there was some guy smoking there, and I was like, I just said to him, "Can I have a chat with you?" And and I started to explain, you know, that I was really into what they were doing there, and. Uh, that actually turned out to be Colin Favour, DJ Colin Favour. And he said, well, you know, I play here and, you know, in heaven. Uh, in fact, he played the Sound Shaft, which is which is close to heaven. And he showed me all some of the records and I didn't realise those. It was a, it Was just a new scene to me. It was like completely new. Mm. He showed me like new import records that he was buying. And I said to him, well, I've got a night here in, in Bletchley why don't you come up and bring some music with you and play? So he did. He, he, I met him on the off the train, and he had his black bin liner, with <laughs> full of records, and he turned up and we played, and I thought it was really good. I mean, we, it wasn't you know we wasn't it wasn't the thing about guest DJs blah 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 at that time. I just wanted to learn off him really. Yeah. So a couple of months after that, he, he just called me and said. Listen, there's a new club starting in London, and I kind of liked, you know, what you were doing there, because we were playing, right across the board. We were playing, as I said, indie, and we were playing gay disco and playing electro. And you were saying to me, well, "Why don't you come down, you know, and you know, sort of talk to the guys there, because they're looking for another DJ." So I was like, "Okay," and this was the Camden Palace in London, yeah. and I got the job, and so I went from being like. You know, not knowing almost nothing, like a few months before, to playing in a in a club, which got voted to like best in the world for like four years in a row. It was like it was the equivalent of fabric. Now, yeah. you know what I mean? It was so. There it was. My journey started.
1: Yeah, I mean, with the similarities with what you were doing in Milton Keynes and what was being played at Heaven.
0: Well, this is it. I was doing something that I think that that's what Colin recognised. Right. I was doing something that was. Kind of on the ball, but I didn't realise it was on the ball. I was just doing my thing. Yeah. I was just playing music that I liked yeah. and, you know, c- crossing genres, but just doing what I thought was was playing what I thought was good music. And that seemed to have, you know, seemed to have caught something, you know, with, with Colin and obviously with the guys at um, Camden Palace. The person that interviewed me was Rusty, Rusty Egan, and he was part of Visage, you know, and Visage started all the Blitz thing. And in fact, that's the reason they got offered at the Camden Palace. They were asked if they would host it. It was obviously what I was doing was recognised by Rusty. And I found that, you know, when I started playing at, at Camden Palace, it, you know, what I was playing in, in my little pub in Bletchley was pretty much what they were doing in London at that time, you know, surprisingly. They were playing the same sort of thing. They were playing a bit of indie. They were playing a bit of gay disco. They were playing all this like a new electronica. And I was just at home. And what was the kind of concept or the idea behind Camden Palace? Well, I think it was kind of like a fashion, mainly a fashion place. They expected a crowd that were going to Blitz Club at the time, Blitz was run by, by Steve. Well, he was, he was the, the host of the night, and, and Russ, Stephen Rusty from Visage. And Boy George was actually worked in a cloakroom at the time, I think, at uh, the, the Blitz, and it had all the all the fashion kids. Blitz was kind of coming to the end of its line, and and they got offered to host like this new, brand new London club, and which is what they did. And so, Captain Palace was was full of. Pop stars, basically, all their mates Spandau Ballet, Wham, Grace Jones, uh, all there. And I was like, bam, I was in the middle of this all of a sudden. (laughs) Was it a world you felt kind of comfortable in? Was that kind of? Yeah. No, it's just all really different for me. It was like a. Since then, it's just been a mad journey. You know, I've just kind of like been, I'm just kind of holding on and watching it all go by. That's how it seems to have been, really. I've not had to really try if you like. I just, just do my own thing and things seem to fall into place. Mm. Because I'd read that the club was sort of loosely
1: modelled on like the Studio 54 it way was. of doing things. Yeah. Um, would you say that the that Studio 54 kind of loomed very large in the minds of people around that time? Was that kind of a thing that people aspired to, to sort of get towards?
0: Yeah, you could say that. I think it was because at the time... London didn't have a club believe it or not they just didn't have a club like that sort of like an
1: iconic meeting place or something that would like define the time just,
0: just a club oh well, you even see. just a club, club. right okay yeah. I mean most of the places were kind of small places that they had a tiny little dance floor and tiny little speakers but the idea was like the DJ wasn't important at all it was more about, let's bring people in. If some kid's playing the music, they'll, it'll bring people in to spend money at the bar. It mm. was like a secondary thing, that the fact that they had a little dance floor. Dance floor would have been, like, you know, this big. It's tiny. So the Camden Palace was the first place to actually... That took the idea of New York where they made the DJ and the music important, mm. you know, like, say, Studio 54 or like Zanzibar in Tony Humphrey's Club, where the, like they had a really good sound system. It was the first time. Camden Palace was one of the first ones that actually had a really, really good sound system and lighting rig, you know, and concentrated on that side of things and the music. Before then, that was secondary. It was more about bringing people in to spend money at the mm. bar. And you said you could mix there as well. Um, Yeah. I
1: was wondering, when did this, like the idea or the concept of like a continuous, like blend of music, when did that first come onto your radar or like who kind of showed you? That was, that that
0: was a heaven. That was a heaven, yeah. Before then, yeah, I was just, because I was playing in this biker's pub and I was playing all kinds of music, it was all segwayed. I was playing one track and then I was playing something else. I didn't speak over the music, but, that's what DJs were doing at that time they were they were talking between the tracks so when I went to heaven I heard like a continuous mix and you know I didn't even know that that really existed I mean I, you know I'd tried when I got back you know to mix and I bought some bought Some turntables that were like belt driven and they had a little kind of knob on them, yep. but they were impossible to mix with, you know. What I mean, I mean, at heaven, they had like these techniques, obviously, and I, I didn't really realize at the time, but I mean, it, it taught me to mix, you know, I had yes. to really concentrate. <laughs> So Camden Palace was where you started beat matching records. Probably, yeah. They had, they had three. They had three techniques there. They had a reel-to-reel because, I mean, that's what they were using, you know, in New York at the time. If you had a demo, you wouldn't you wouldn't have a white label to give to the DJ. You'd actually mix the thing and put it down to a two-track reel-to-reel and take that to the club. In fact, you can see... If you look on YouTube, you can see, like, New Order, say, Blue Monday, doing the track in the New York studio and then taking it to the Fun House where John Jellybean was playing and he would stick it straight on the reel and he'd mix it in like that. <laughs> That's the why they did it.
1: So, assume it was at
0: Camden Palace
1: that the earliest house tracks were coming through? Yeah, yeah. I mean, do you remember some of those, like, earliest encounters?
0: Yeah, I do. I, I was trying to find music. In fact, I spent a lot of my week... I was only working at, um, Camden Palace like a, I did a Tuesday which is a bit of a it was like a, it was called like the Gong Show or something some weird thing and, and I was doing Friday and Saturdays there as well mm. but I used to come down in the week in London and, and go to like the record and tape exchange go to all the record companies to pick up new stuff you know I was in a position in where I was getting decent money I could afford to get the music and I was just going crazy yeah. I was just buying huge piles of vinyl every week just go mad really you know i had everything
1: you know i guess i'm interested to know what the sort of conversation surrounding this music was like at that time like you know if you were discussing it with fellow djs or like people who were into it like but you know how were you interpreting it because I assume that you didn't, like, there wasn't this glut of information around that time, was there? Well, you know, uh, these records just arriving from the US.
0: And- yeah, no, there wasn't that glut, but there was one shop, there was one shop everybody used to go to was Groove Records in Wardour Street, which is probably closed by now. But the one I went to, I found this little secret place in. it was uh, called Smithers and Lee in Oxford Street. It was basically a department store with a music thing. And I started talking to this guy in there and he really knew his stuff. And that happened to be Joe Negro. You know, he was—he was, oh, uh, okay. he was the, basically the buyer, and he was into music, and he was kind of using using them to buy, for his own preference. So I found this little secret hoard. So I used to go to Smithers and Lee and buy all these and uh, import tracks. And one of the first ones I got was, I think, if, if you're talking about house music here, "She's Lost Control" by Sleazy D. I think it came out in '86. I started to play that, and people were saying to me. Why are you playing this stuff, it's just drum beats, you know. I mean, they, they didn't get it at the time, I was like, I was like I thought it was really cool,
1: yeah. So, I guess the approach for you would been to um, weave it into your existing music Ooh. that you played. Would that be the way to sort that's of it, that's sell it people on it, yeah, yeah, yeah? And were you finding like with you know increasing enthusiasm, people were just sort of warming up to, to the idea of it? I mean, was it a tough
0: sell? It, not really, because uh, we were kind of the dictators of the style of the fashion, really. So, we yeah. played what Wanted. In fact, I kind of like teasing the audience in a way. You know, what I mean, we were kind of there, and I could. I, I suppose it's in a position of power, but I felt like you know I could I could do what I wanted to. I could manipulate the crowd, you know, and I could I could I, I could hold them back until I wanted most of them on the dance floor. I was in that position where I could play what I wanted and get away with it really yeah I see and
1: you end up giving some like UK debuts to some of the big US guys right or you would sort of instrumental in bringing some of those guys over for early gigs
0: well yeah because I mean what happened after I finished the Camden Palace was that um, I was kind of unemployed for a while because I don't know why it is with me I just do these crazy things I decided that one day I just didn't want to go in anymore and I didn't just stopped so I didn't have a job didn't have any money but then, you know, somehow the rave scene just kind of popped in. The guy that started off the whole scene, Tony Costan, I hear his name is, used to live in Milton Keynes, came into like this, this local club that I started to play at just to earn a bit of money. And he asked me if uh, I'd be interested in being his musical coordinator, which basically was finding the music for his parties that he was going to do. So, I did that, and the first one was in Wembley. it was pretty small. He turned out to be the guy that was instrumental in starting the rave scene. That's what kicked off this whole worldwide phenomenon it was him walking into this club in Milton Keynes and asking me, and then then that was the first raves. they were the they were called Sunrise. And after that, there was obviously lots of other people copied it and it just got massive and it spread around the world.
1: Well, what was that response to? Why was he doing it?
0: He thought that just like I thought at the time, going into like a local club, they didn't really look at what your personality, what your character was like. They looked at what you were wearing. You had to wear a suit to get into some of these places. You know what I mean, they figured that you weren't going to fight in a suit. So they made you wear a suit to get in. He didn't like that idea of things and I think he just wanted to start something different where there wasn't that kind of focus. It was more about the people. They could do what they wanted. So he started this night and we did one like in Wembley. It was only a couple of hundred people and it it just worked really well. People must have been feeling the same as we were feeling. It, It seemed almost like overnight that it changed when people started going to these outdoor raves and stopped going to the clubs. The clubs emptied because you could just do what you wanted in a rave. You could just, it would just go on for a long time. Sound system was massive. You know, it's like the spectacle was incredible. You know,
1: yeah. I mean, did it feel like a, in a way that it was melding with other established cultures? You know, you thinking about like sound system culture and like hippie movement and stuff like that. There must have been echoes of those things.
0: It was really because it started off small and then it just got bigger. And then the other people came in to the marketplace to compete. And in order to become the best, it just got into this. Match of like, to get the biggest system, to get the biggest fairground rides, right. to get, I think that's how it really started, but it didn't start off big, it just got to be big, you know, and in the end, there was 25,000 people going out to one of these raves. Do you reflect on those parties
1: pretty fondly because i mean i'd imagine it's the sort of thing that would be very easy to become uh nostalgic over but i mean did, do you feel like the parties were as good as people certainly like make them out to be did it feel like a really special time it really did yeah. it really
0: did yeah in fact going back to your original, earlier question when house music came in, there was a definite vibe. Mm. There was like something in the air. You knew something was happening, something exciting was going on. That's what it felt like with the raves. That's what it felt like at the beginning of house music, you know. Mm. And through the raves, you were able to kind of re-establish
1: yourself and sort of be playing regularly again.
0: Yeah, I definitely was. I mean, I, I had about a year off from leaving the Camden Palace. Then uh, I started working this... It's a little warehouse. It was called Rip, uh, Rave in Peace. It was run by this guy Paul Rip, and uh, the resident DJs were myself, uh, Mr C, and Kid Bachelor. It was in uh, the old Clink Street studios, basically where it was. Clink Street was the was the place where prisons, where the first prison was. It used to be called the Clink, I don't know if you know that, but mm. when people used to say you know, you get in the Clink. It was because the first prison was, was at Clink Street, and it was on that site. Basically, it was a really run-down warehouse that was really dark. I mean, it was scary, and that's. I think actually that's why a lot of journalists didn't write about it, and they wrote about places like Shum, because they were actually scared to go in places like that. It was the kind of people, they they were kind of dodgy people that went in there and it was like really dark and just it was just strobes and smoke. You couldn't see a foot in front of you, you know what I mean? And I can't imagine a journalist kind of wanting to go there and with his notepad and writing something, you know what I mean?
1: I imagine all that contributed to the atmosphere though. Yeah, no,
0: that was incredible because, you know, you could actually play a track and it would be it would be like a religious experience. In fact, Ashley Beadle was playing in one of the other rooms. They had a, a shock sound system playing in one of the other sections And after done my set, I walked in. He was on the mic going, okay, I want everybody to kneel down to the God of House. The whole room did it. You know, I it was like it was kind of a religious thing. You know what I mean? It felt like you were like as one.
1: Yeah, I guess, especially as it's something so fresh still. You know, people are still wrapping their heads around it. It It would feel like it's some religious transcendent experience or something.
0: Yeah, seriously, it was... That's why I think these days when I look back at it, you know, people are trying to do these raves. They've got, they're never going to experience that. It just won't happen again. But they haven't seen what I've seen. It, you know, it's not like, that, you know, they can, they, they're going to capture that again. It's just a shame in a way. I feel sorry that they don't. It's such an amazing time.
1: So it was a little later on, you ended up opening a DJ agency, didn't you? Yeah. Which I guess for that time was... Like not something that people did. Well, it was one of the first, if not the first. I
0: think it was the. I think it was the first. It started off because. You know, when the rave scene started, there was there was a p- few dodgy people that decided they were going to rip people off. The way it worked, really, was if you were putting on a rave, you didn't really give the address as a place out, you mm-hmm. know, because the police would shut it down. So you had a meeting point, and then people would pay for tickets at the meeting point, and then they would take the tickets, and they could get into the rave, and they'd be told where the rave was. Unfortunately, there was people that were just putting up meeting points, taking the money, and there was no rave. I thought that, that you know, but there should be contracts and you know some kind of you know system for the DJs that you know we would you know be able to control it a little bit. And my friend run, a, run an agency. He was part of an agency that, that, that booked bands. I asked him if he would do it, and he didn't really get back to me. And I was like, okay, well, I just I'll do it myself. And uh, I contacted a couple of people from the states, and it seemed to be successful. It took off. And before I knew it, I was getting – in fact, I've still got them. I've got texts uh, – not texts, sorry, Fax, faxes yeah. from, from from Jeff Mills, from Moby, uh, you know, handwritten, saying we're they, we, they heard there's a scene going on. Because the first people I brought over was De Posse from the States, from Chicago. And I think the word got around. They were telling people there's this mad scene going on in the U.K., Word got around really fast there. Then, I, then they were all coming to me. And I had this amazing lineup. I had just everybody that was anybody. Basically, you know, all, all the Detroit crew, Todd Terry, you know, Green Velvet exclusive, Richie Horton, you know, all these people were exclusive to my agency.
1: I'd read that you'd given sort of early gigs to Horton. Initially, it was like quite a hard sell on, it was, on what yeah. he was doing.
0: Well, I mean, I felt that, that I was just, you know, again, I was just doing... What I liked, I, the music that I liked I was, was n- never really a motive for me about being hip or wanting to make money. It mm. was just about uh, that's what I wanted to do. I liked all these people's music. I took them on because I liked their music and supported their music. That was the reason. It wasn't about money or anything else. And I took on Richie because he they, they just brought a track out on Plus 8 called uh, Technarchy, I think it was called, and I really liked it but it wasn't really that big at that time Mm. it was his first track and so I had a job selling him at first
1: yeah and what was the sort of broader context for techno
0: at that time in London or in the UK I think that everybody, they like to pigeonhole things anyway, you know, so, yeah. and more so these days, but then, then it was a bit broader. You, you did have DJs that were playing at the raves, some of them whom were playing more techno stuff, some of them were playing more vocal stuff. It didn't really matter at the time, you know, some of them were playing more balearic It just was the accepted thing at that time. Nowadays, it seems like, you know, you go to a club because you're into, you know, sort of deep techno or, or drum and bass or whatever it might be but it wasn't so pigeonholed at the time. So uh,
1: in terms of the agency what
0: happened? Yeah. What happened when we got bigger we've gone bigger and bigger and bigger we opened up offices in Japan in um, San Francisco in New York in Belgium in South Africa in Canada it just got really big and I was, I was like using it uh, as a kind of really getting other people to represent the same people as we were representing in their particular territory because I figured we couldn't get around to all those territories at one time. It would be better for someone who knew their area, concentrating it. So I I was, you know, really giving them the business and they'd have to come through us eventually, but it was, you know, we had offices set up everywhere. And it got to the stage where... I wasn't actually DJing so much anymore. I ended up like just like running around after this business that I didn't really want to do in the first place. So I ended up being a businessman or an accountant or something, you know what I mean? And I was thinking, know, oh, I can't do this anymore. So in kind of the height of it being really successful, I decided to close it down. People were going, no, you're crazy. You know, it's like it was making money and it's doing well. But I was thinking... Why am I doing this? I didn't even want to
1: do this. Uh, So I guess it was this time around 20 years ago that you were first approached by Terry Francis and Nathan Coles, who were pitching you on an idea for a a club night.
0: Yeah. What happened was that I was, you know, I think we've mentioned I live in Milton Keynes. It's like right in the centre of the country. When the rave scene started, it wasn't about... About DJs from other other countries. In fact, if you look, if you pick up an old DJ, it, which which is what I did a few, a few weeks ago, it wasn't even called DJ Magazine, was something else. There was no mention of any of, of any international DJs. It was all about the UK. So how long
1: ago were we talking? say so ninety three.
0: Ninety three. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Just the scene wasn't, wasn't international at all. In fact, when I used to travel to some places, some of the DJs used to say to me, please bring along any promos, anything that you've got, because they couldn't even buy records in their country, let alone their city. You know I mean? It was so hard to get music mm. internationally at that time. Where were you going around that time? Well, uh, mainly in Europe, just mainly in Europe. I uh, did a few gigs in the States as well. It just started to spread. I think it spread because some of the kids that went to the parties, you know, they found themselves somewhere else and thought, I can export the idea. So they started their own little rave scenes, and that's kind of what started off the whole rave scene around the world, just kids moving around mm. and knowing something that the other people didn't know and starting off their own little club nights, and then the rave scene was, got bigger. I was on most of the flyers for most of the big graves at that time so a lot of people were calling me saying can you play somewhere else that was the first time i started traveling yeah. around in the early 90s so with the wiggle party the guys had already started out by the time they approached you was that is that right yeah yeah they, they i think terry and nathan met and i dj'd for them one day and they just one night and they just said would you be interested in being our resident So that's how it still is. Basically, it's Terry and Nathan's thing, and I just turn up and DJ.
1: Yeah. So, uh, (laughs) and what was uh, what was their kind of pitch to you around the time? What were they trying to achieve with it?
0: They just wanted to do something that wasn't sort of commercial. That wasn't. There was just something different. And I I knew what they were trying to do because that was always in my mind. You know what I mean? When I even first started DJing, when I even first went to Heaven, it was I was looking for something different. I was looking for something that, you know, I felt at home with. And that's what I thought when I met Terry and Nathan, that they were on the same tip as me. They wanted to do something different, something Mm. from their heart, you know what I mean? How would you describe your style around that time? Black, American, I suppose, that was my thing. I had to have a groove, I had to have a bass line. I'm still into that. I think that that's what my music revolves around. I mean, with the
1: sort of early guests that played the parties that would kind of define what was going on? Were they bringing over guest DJs, in fact?
0: Not really. I no. mean, it was just us three. It was really based around us three. We started to, to bring in guests after a while, uh, mainly because people were asking us. In fact, even Richie asked to play uh, Wiggle. We, you know, it had, a, it had a pretty big name. But, you know, I'm happy to say that, you know, we just did our thing. Things have changed a lot these days. I, you know, I don't want to knock it, but these days it's all about hype. You know, I mean, it's all about this kind of trendy, kind of hipster stuff. And um, you know, I don't really fit in with that. I've always just done my thing. You know. So the way you're describing
1: the music with this sort of emphasis on groove, would you say that this was the sort of genesis of this thing that later became known as tech house?
0: Well, I've got a cassette at home, and it was from Mr C and on one side it says tech and the other side it says house and he's the guy i think that probably coined the term tech house because it wasn't about being a genre it was about mixing styles of music it wasn't being conformist and saying i like techno or i like house it's like i like both why can't i plan both so you know it was tech on one side house on the other and that's what we were playing
1: uh, okay do you think it's kind of been uh, misconstrued over that's, the years as just yes, being like
0: just the exploration of the middle ground rather yeah. than
1: being like you know this well, wide
0: I, thing somehow I think that it got to be you know the genre got to be describing a sound that was like tribal how, I don't know, but it did. And then all these American labels jumped on that, you know. And then, you know, like Halo and Hippie and all these guys. And it just kind of burnt that out. And, and Tech House got to be a dirty word in a way, mm. which is a shame because it wasn't like that when it started. Yeah,
1: I mean, I guess at the time there was some like, you know, very sort of interesting, like percussive led records that just had this sort of, you know, great sort of understated attitude in a way.
0: yeah. I was looking for those tracks. I was looking for something that wasn't too vocally or wasn't too techy. you know. It was something in the middle ground that, you know, had a groove and a bass line. I mean, did you find yourself, like, picking from both sides around that time? Were you sort of yeah. equally interested in... Yeah, no. I I, know, ...and house? I was equally t- interested in everything. You know, my career had grown up by, you know, getting get into, like, gay disco, but in, into indie or whatever. So, basically, if I found a track that I liked, I didn't care who it was by. And, in fact, a lot of people were asking me about... The names of tracks and well, I suppose a lot of other DJs have said it, but at that time when I was picking vinyl, I was picking from just the colour of the label. I didn't really care if it was Madonna on the label or whoever it might be. If it was good I, and I thought it was good, I would play it. Mm. And it wasn't about you know, anything other than you know what I liked. And I guess that's a spirit that lives on to this. Well, I hope so. (laughs) Yeah. I hope I don't get dragged into it too much. I've seen a lot of people get dragged into it, really. Unfortunately, you know, where they started off with this different vision and ended up just getting, you know, dragged into the, the kind of all the corporate, you know, hype with this sort of sound in mind around the end
1: of the late 90s early 2000s you had like a number of labels going sort of I did simultaneously and yeah what was the sort of overall aim and how did you like differentiate between
0: them Well, actually, it was just to spread the sound, really, because I know that not all distributors at that time were great, and I didn't have a particular style, so I just figured I was just going to make tracks, and then if I felt they fit in on one label, I'd give them to that label, and if it felt on another one, then I would give them to another one. But unfortunately, at that time you know, the record industry wasn't doing great and all my distributors went bust. So my label was, went bust because, you know, I was owed money from the distributors. They had stock of mine, which I didn't get back and I lost quite a lot of money and really just gave it up after that. Sort of interested. I mean, I wouldn't want to
1: like put too defined terms on what you were doing, but I think what's very like noticeable to me is this very nice kind of like, understated like you know very functional very focused on the club but this very like understated way of doing things mm. is a sort of a like inherent appeal in that approach to you yeah. is that sort
0: of like reflect your attitude towards music or like other things you think it does i've when i first thought about djs i just thought well Seriously, what are these guys doing? They're standing up there playing someone else's music. Really, it's not that difficult. You know what I mean? So, I've never tried to like grab the limelight because I've never felt like I should, I deserve it. It's just more about like, I've got a particular taste and I just do my thing. And if some people like it, then great. You know, it's mm. like people seem to debate and get all deep about this stuff. It's, you know, what's the big deal?
1: Uh, so, when a Fabric opened up at the end of the 90s, I assume you were playing there from almost the beginning is that right
0: pretty much from the beginning I can't remember exactly when the first time I played there but I did go even before the club opened actually to have a look at the the, you know the way they were doing it and yeah it just was looked amazing I mean I just looked like my kind of place I would have loved to actually been you know asked to be the resident there you know Terry got the job but he deserves it he's a great DJ
1: and why was it such a good fit for the kind of what you were doing and sort of what Wiggle was doing? Why did it kind of resonate or why was it sort of a, a good relationship?
0: I think it was r- because it was run by this guy, Keith. Keith used to come to a lot of the parties that we did. He understood where we were at. In fact, he was a, you know, a huge supporter, which is why I think Terry got the job, basically. You know, he used to come to the Wiggle parties. He liked that attitude. It, that's what it takes, I think, to run a good club. It takes someone behind it that's got the right attitude the right sense of what they think a club should be like and it continues to this day if you look at fabric and what they're doing they're now 15 or 16 years maybe i think that's amazing for any club to last that long and the lineups are still really really good you know and people might knock it because it's like everything it's got a little bit more touristy but what's in people's hearts there is still the right thing.
1: Yeah, I mean, do you still kind of gain the same like, feeling from playing there? Has it always been like an enjoyable
0: experience I love for it. life the you know, last 15 years? I love it. And You know what? It's like, it's like if you fuck up there, excuse the language, then you can only blame yourself because everything is completely sorted for you. you know? It's down to you on that night. You know? Do you have a um, particular room you like to play in the club? I like room three actually. I do my own demo night. I've got a regular night with Terry uh, every three months there and they allow us to pick the guests that we want. Um, What we're trying to do is introduce new uh, upcoming talent that hasn't quite yet broken or got to the stage where Fabric would book them so we kind of introduce them. Uh, I like Room 3 because it's like A room within a club, it's like it's almost its its own club. It's very transient. People walk through there. So it's a challenge. You have to play well to keep people in that room because they're not really interested in that room. They're more interested in room one and two. And they're just like wandering around the club, checking it out. So if you can grab them and keep them there, you're doing a good job. And I always love a challenge.
1: Because <laughs> <laughs> it almost feels like as a DJ, you have like a 10 minute window of like demonstration and they're always
0: looking for an excuse to go to somewhere else. Yeah, that's how it was been from the start. As I said, when I started at Camden Palace, I was, was doing that. I was trying to manipulate the crowd. I was seeing what, work, what I needed to do. I was learning, you know, I was taking it all in.
1: Yeah, I wanted to ask about this, actually, because obviously you've been DJing for a good number of years now. But do you see sort of through lines from what you were doing, like back in Milton Keynes to like your sets these days? Has there been like a prevailing attitude? Do you think?
0: So I just try and keep it real. I just try and think to myself, you know, just pick the tracks I like, Do not get influenced by names, by trends, by hype, anything like that. I'll just listen. And if I like it, I'll play it. I don't really care who it is. I don't try and follow anything. I find it difficult when people ask me that question, like, who's your favorite DJ? Who, you know, I don't actually pay much attention to what's going on. I try and keep it like I did from the beginning, which is just like... There's the music that's out there. I listen to lots of it. I select what I like and that's what I play. And, you know, mm-hmm. I managed to build up a following around the world. I don't get bookings you see these days anymore uh, or at all. Never used to. From, you know, the hipster kind of crowd. I'm, I'm not a name DJ. I'm not a flavor of the month. I've always been there. People book me because they know what they're going to get. So I've got friends all over the world so when I DJ it's like instead of going to some random gig that they book me because my name is blah 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 it's more like I'm gonna visit some friends and then I visit some other friends in another part of the world and some other friends and that's what I love about it I'm glad I'm not involved in that you know getting booked just because of I'm this or I've got this production out and that's bullshit right it's interesting you say that because I would link this back to the the
1: music you were making and releasing because I think one of the key qualities for me was this like longevity yeah right there's this idea that there's not really like necessarily of its time I mean you can place it like in a in a certain window of time or something but you know those records could be like dusted off and played at any time and like you know not really leave DJ's bags for a long time yeah like is this
0: idea of longevity been something that has been
1: like you know key in your thinking
0: yeah, question actually, because that's exactly what I was thinking most of the time. You know that you know I, I examine other people's music and it's that that's that I like that longevity. I like the fact that you know I'm liking a track and I discovered it. And these days, the same kids, some other kids are liking it and discovering it. You know, it, it does stand the test of time. When I make mixes or when I buy music, that's that's what's behind my thinking. Is can I play it again later on? It's got to be just a certain quality. And I'm pretty good at picking up stuff that's like that, you know, and and I I stand by that still.
1: Mm. And so you're someone who's sort of placed a lot of um, importance with pushing new music as well. Why has that been so
0: important to you, would you say? Because I'm bored quickly. (laughs) That's pretty much the bottom line. Yeah, I have to actually avoid playing some tracks. You know, some people, like, they play house music all the time in the car or at home. I actually have to avoid that because if I listen to something too much, I get bored with it, and then I don't play it, even though it's a good track, and it really should be exposed to, to the crowds out there. So I, I just generally try and listen to it. If I like it, I put it in my, you know, virtual box to play out, and then... Um, and that's it.
1: So you made the shift to digital DJing at a certain point. When was that?
0: About seven years ago. Yeah. yeah, I mean,
1: did it feel like much of a change in thinking or approach, or did it? Was it just like a okay, this is natural. I'm I'm going to get into this
0: thing. Uh, I've always been into technology. I've always been into new things. I wanted to try it out. And I liked the idea of it. It just, it felt like playing vinyl, except my choices weren't limited any longer. I could take along 10,000 tracks with me. You know, that's what I liked about it. I don't really see what, there's people have got hang up about it. I don't really know why. You know, it feels the same to me, you know, playing that music. In fact, these days, the, the software has got quite sophisticated. What I, I use a lot in Tractor is the fact that I can jump around within a waveform, and, and play a beginning and loop it and then jump to the end and play. You can't do that with vinyl. Vinyl is very linear. It starts at the beginning, it goes through, and if there's a shitty breakdown that you don't like, you have to put up with it. I don't have to put up with it now. I can just skip over it or I can loop another part. So I'm really, I'm constantly remixing one on mm. because I, I, I know what I like and I think a lot of tracks these days, producers don't actually have a lot of great ideas the track's good for two minutes and they stretch it for six so I just play the good two you know you think it's made you a better DJ I think so a lot of people think so as well they you know when I started playing on uh, it was Serato at first people were saying to me my sets uh, definitely more interesting so, uh, I don't know, I go, I'll go along with that, you know. Uh, I think that it's made it more exciting. You know, I do get I do get these ideas, like I'm playing somewhere, and I go, oh, wow, that'd be a great track. I can just dig it out, there it is. I've got 10,000 tracks with me. It's not yeah. like I've got, you know... These days, if you're playing vinyl, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to take a big box of vinyl, you know. So you've limited to maybe, what, 150 tracks? It's crazy. Do you feel as though the culture surrounding DJing has
1: shifted a lot in the time you've been involved with it like certainly if you look back to the time around the early 90s and the the people who would be involved with it and the discussions that would take place surrounding it like is it much different these days
0: do you think I think in the UK there's not much that have changed I think they're really quite educated in fact I noticed this when I was when I started a DJ agency and I brought guys from the US they were really quite shocked Uh, you know, how knowledgeable the UK kids were, they knew about producers, they knew about labels. It seemed like in the US, they were saying to me, well, if it's not top 40, people don't really care. I mean, surprisingly enough, people like Derek May were saying there's not that much going on in Detroit. It's not like it's, you know, known. It's not like it's bought by those. It was being bought in the UK and in Europe. Actually, back in America, it was all about top 40 You know, they were shocked about the scene. So I I think, well, the the kids in the UK are really quite knowledgeable, and that's that's always been the way they are. They are now as well. So next month, uh, you're going to be
1: celebrating twentieth anniversary of Wiggle. Would that be the exact date that they
0: started out? Do you you recall? Who knows what the date was? It was a bit dim and distant past there. But no, we, we chose that date because when we decided that we were going to do something, you know, uh, like have a, have a party and we approach fabric, we asked them also if they would be interested in having a, a mix CD out, which they agreed to distribute for us. It's just taken a little while to get those tracks in for us to be able to get the mix done. We don't see each other as often as, you know, we'd like these days. We each, I've got our independent careers. Nathan lives in, in Ibiza, So, you know, time just kind of flew, and by the time we've actually got this mix done, a couple of weeks ago, it's already, you know, July. So, we have to now schedule the actual mix party for September. So, on September the 6th will be the official launch of the mix CD and a party at Fabric to celebrate our 20-year anniversary at Wiggle.
1: So, what was the idea with the compilation? Because you've got, I guess it would be described as like notable or like key guests um, to contribute tracks, is that right?
0: That's right, yeah. Well, we have had a lot of guests and we did send a mail out to people and ask them if they want to be involved. Some people just didn't even bother to reply, unfortunately. Uh, We've had some great guests, which we would have loved to include, but we didn't get a response from them or their agents. But we did get a response from a lot of people, a lot of really good DJs. So we just used the ones that we'd got. It'd be nice to include others, you know, what can you say? So what's, um,
1: what's kind of next for you? What's on the horizon? Like, how do you look forward to kind of the next
0: decade of DJing? Well, yeah, I've been around for a long time. You know, I've always said to myself, if I get to the point where I don't enjoy the music or people stop asking me, I, I would I would stop doing it. That's not the case. People are still asking me and I'm still loving it. So here I am, 30-something years later, I'm still DJing. Obviously, things have changed. You know, these days, you know, it's not just about you can just put out some music. You have to... 50% of it is like marketing. You have to know about all the social networks. You have to, you have to know about how to get your music out there. And it's all about, you know, putting out a production in order to get bookings these days. Sad, but true. So um, I'm getting back into doing some music. Uh, I've released a couple of things on my label, Storm, which basically were old tracks that have been reinterpreted by some of my favourite producers. I've had Mikhail Popovicu, Tiger Skin, Kate Simcoe, and Dashund. I've got some others that are doing remixes for me. And then once that kind of introduction, so people know my name again, I'll start bringing out some other new music. I'm looking forward to it, but at the same time, I always felt that, you know, DJ should be a DJ. You shouldn't have to produce to be a dj but it seems like that's the rules these days yeah i mean do you think you would be doing it if it
1: wasn't for these sort of external market forces if you like maybe
0: not maybe not i mean i do enjoy making music i'm not saying that you know i'm just doing it because of that i do enjoy it but it's it's just a shame that you have to be a producer to be a dj really you know but i feel like once someone's given me a try then it's all good after that